broadcasting from I-75 on the way to Gainesville, Florida. This is Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Thurl. This is episode 46, Homosexual or Queer, Part 2. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going Welcome slow. everybody to the Campus Rich Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. Uh, I am currently driving down I-75 on the way to Gainesville, Florida. I uh, got the semester kicked off yesterday at the University of Florida. I'm going to be returning there today. Then tonight I'll be heading up to Atlanta to spend a couple days in the great city of Atlanta as part of the G3 conference, which is Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I believe most of the other people on the Cross-Politic Network or Fight, Laugh, Feast Network uh, will be joining. I know Matt, as well as the Cross-Politic guys, uh, will be joining. I'm not sure about a couple of the others. But if you are there, feel free to check out. We're going to have a little booth, and then the Cross-Politic guys are going to be doing a show Friday afternoon, kind of live uh, somewhere. I think it's a 1 o'clock start, so if you want to uh, swing by, watch the show take place, you can... Uh, do that. And uh, yeah, so hopefully we'll meet up, see some of you guys there. Now, this is my second day preaching. Yesterday was a pretty good day at the University of Florida, but it was also uh, my first day in a while. And so it's kind of funny. You always feel a little rusty going back out there. You know, can you get a crowd? Can you, uh, how do you answer questions? Uh, Is your voice all right? It always takes me a little bit to get my voice kind of prepped. Uh, I usually feel like I kind of, if I preach too long uh, the first couple weeks, I feel like my voice is often uh, a little weak and stuff like that. So yesterday I went to the University of Florida and I had to start a little bit late in the day because the, the place we preach, which is called Turlington Plaza, had so much going on. It's just so loud between music and fraternities and dancing and bells and everything else. Um, if you try to preach in that environment immediately, you're just kind of a resounding gong, a bunch, a bunch of noise. And so I waited till about 1.20-ish to begin to kind of let some of that clear out uh, before I started and then was able to go to about 4.30, which was a pretty good first day, just kind of ease into it. And I had some really good discussions, uh, especially with a couple progressive students here, also some you know mediocre discussions. Uh, but in typical fashion, got a little bit of pushback from the Christians that thought it's uh, too aggressive, but then if you ask them if they've done any evangelism, the answer is no. And so uh, I'll I'll take my aggressive evangelism over their non-aggressive non-evangelism. But uh, one of the main discussions that stood out was with a uh, guy named James who uh, he had a Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique shirt on, so uh, relatively progressive in his outlook and things. And one of the things that was interesting is that he has read a little bit of the Gospels and understood some of the teachings of the Gospel. And more in the sense that he wanted the Gospels to be this radical call and this uh, conflict with empire. And that's kind of a common progressive sort of thing. Even in progressive churches, they'll talk about the American empire and going against the American empire. Uh, But as push comes to shove, though, in that discussion, when you uh, go against democracy and you go against his socialism, uh, then you start to get pushback. And so what's interesting is he doesn't what he wants is the Christians to offer up a critique of certain strands of American culture or Western culture. What he doesn't really want is a thorough Christian critique of all things that are contrary to the word of God. And so when I took my position, uh, 
as far as Jesus Christ being Lord, having all authority under heaven and earth, and everybody owning their allegiance to him in all ways, and that my message is political, which he was willing to agree with, that the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord is a political statement in the Roman Empire. It's also a political statement in the context of democracy and Western liberal democracies and all that sort of stuff. He was willing to grant those things, uh, but he always wanted to hedge the minute I went after his beliefs. And that was the thing that was kind of interesting was, um, in certain ways, he'd applaud me, and he liked it, um, but then he would be kind of said he was scared or uh, that my views might incite violence sort of thing once it kind of went against the particulars of his belief. And that's the nature of the conflict. And so even Paul in Acts chapter 17, uh, there are things that he would say. I'm sure some of the Epicurean philosophers would say, yay, we agree with that. And the Stoic philosophers would say, boo. Then there are other things where the Stoic philosophers would say, yes. And the Epicureans, Epicureans would boo because the nature of kind of even tying to our discussion, the nature of man is they're in contact with the truth and they're going to have truth in something they're just going to end up absolutizing the wrong things. As Christians, we want to absolutize God and his word. We don't want to absolutize some contingency of creation. And so be it our culture, be it our race, be it our gender, um, all those things are fine and good in and of themselves. Um, but we don't want to absolutize that and that become uh, the absolute standard. And that's part of the discussion that we end up having even with this uh, discussion on sexuality in the United States and in the church is certain people who want to critique and deconstruct the scriptures they always want to, so for example, if they want to deconstruct patriarchy, they'll just say that the Bible was written in the context of a patriarchal society, but that's not necessarily God's ideal, but rather a more egalitarian uh, perspective is, is really what's going on there. So, the, so most of us could probably agree that when Paul tells is it Timothy to greet your brothers with a holy kiss, uh, not too many of us are greeting one another with a holy kiss, nor do we necessarily even know what a holy kiss is, what that looks like, what that's supposed to be. Um, and so we'd probably say, oh, that's a, a cultural context. So if I was telling you to go meet up with somebody, hey, give them a hug for me, um, I would be imitating a, a cultural way of greeting love towards a fellow brother in some regard. And so uh, Paul telling them to greet each other with a holy kiss in some way is, is probably a similar context of me telling you to hug somebody. So there's a cultural condition to the admonition of the holy kiss or hug somebody for me. And though, so then the question becomes, as you look at issues like slavery or you look at issues of, say, female submission, are those things in a similar way a cultural backdrop that they're working through in their culture or these kind of universal norms. And so the more progressive people are gonna to wanna to say, these are not universal norms, but it's Paul dealing with the cards that he's dealt in a cultural context of dealing with those issues. And so we, in a similar way, are dealing in our culture, in our context, and we're trying to apply the word of God. Now, uh, you know, and so there's a certain level where we can agree that there are certain things in the Bible uh, that are not universal in all places, all cultural times. Uh, but then we also want to step back and say there are things in the Bible that are universal for all people in all cultures at all times. And so the debate a little bit is uh, what things are what. And so in the context of sexuality and last week's discussion where, uh, if you remember, I, I wanted to outline the idea that the move in the discussion with certain strands of progressives in the kind of, we'll just use the term queer, because they don't want to use the term homosexual, because they want to think it's almost like too scientific and too biological and too natural, uh, but we'd rather use the term queer, and that way there's a social constructed view of self-identification. And so the more progressive wings of some of these discussions are moving into a more radical um, social self-conception. And so, but then you bring that discussion over to the church with uh, Article 7 of the Nashville Statement and also Greg Johnson at the PCA General Assembly, um, what you realize is as the church is trying to, perhaps, well, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, they're trying to do ministry to people uh, that in some way, shape, or form are tempted with to commit 
sod, we'll use the term sodomy, you know, same-sex attraction, sodomy, whatever word you want to use. Um, they're, well, if we give them the benefit of that, they're trying to communicate to people who have some sort of self-conception that they are, you know, oriented towards the same sex and wanting to, you know, their sexual desires. Um, but what, it, what I think we need to realize is, is given our context, there's so much genuine fluidity in the way this is being discussed. So let, let me do this. Let me read Article 7 of Nashville Statement. Then I'm going to play a clip from Greg Johnson in part responding to the Nashville Statement. Then I'm going to kind of respond to Greg Johnson and maybe how we a little bit approach uh, this issue in the context of the church and also in our evangelism. So here's Article 7 of the National Statement. We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purpose in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. I think all of us uh, hopefully can affirm that and agree with that. Uh, the National Statement goes on to say this. We deny that adopting a homosexual or a transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. And that's where the rub comes in. Greg Johnson wants to be able to take on a homosexual or a gay uh, self-identification. And so here's a clip from Greg on the floor of the GA. And I'm not going to play the whole thing, um, but just kind of what I think is kind of the key takeaway. Here's that clip. Friends, when I read Article 7 of the Nashville Statement, It hurts because Article 7 says that it is a sin to adopt a homosexual self-conception. And we don't do that for any other people group. We don't tell alcoholics it's a sin to conceive of yourself as an alcoholic because drunkenness is a sin. It's the beginning of learning to manage your alcoholism and obedience to Christ so it doesn't define you. We don't tell paraplegics that they should conceive of themselves as able-bodied because that's God's ideal. Uh, We wouldn't tell an infertile woman that she needs to conceive of herself as fertile and she's unbelieving to conceive of herself as infertile because that's not God's design. Friends, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and Jesus has washed me and saved me. And my prayer is that you would consider the damage that will be done to people like me when Article 7 says that it's a sin to acknowledge our brokenness and our shame and the suffering and sorrow that goes with that. My prayer is that we will instead do the hard work of coming up with something biblically nuanced, theologically sophisticated, missionally sensitive, and pastorally sensitive. So for Greg, the idea, and I guess I would disagree with him, because I don't think the idea of being disabled is a sinful desire in the same way that a homosexual act would be a sinful desire. And I'm not even sure what an alcoholic self-conception would be. Uh, And this is where I would want to agree uh, with last week's discussion regarding, you know, uh, the idea of alcoholism is not, I, I don't believe, in your DNA um, is some sort of genetic thing. Uh, so, like, when Greg tells a story on the floor of the GA that at 10 years old he's at a wedding and he had this desire uh, for the groomsmen or something like that, I, I, I don't know. Per- perhaps, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, uh, so I'm not sure what the uh, context would be. But I'm not sure if somebody at the age of 10 years old was just like, yep, I loved alcohol. I knew from the age of 10 I wanted to uh, be drunk all the time and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the case. Now, the idea of a disabled person, uh, we believe that is a result of the fall. We're not tell- and, but we don't think there's anything inherently, they're not doing anything sinful by being disabled. Um, and nor, So we, the idea of a self-conception that I'm disabled, like if your legs don't work, your legs don't work. Um, and, and 
And so there is no need to call them out of that. So, so this idea of moving homosexuality into that. Uh, so if the idea was if you're a racist, and but we would not, I don't believe, ask a racist to take on it. Uh, we would ask them to leave their racist self-identification. And so I, I don't really get what Greg's point is. So I, so I think the main question we have to ask uh, the people who want to take on a uh, certain self-conceptions in the context of Christianity that uh, might be contrary to at least the historic faith and what we believe we read in the Bible is, would they give us a list of self-identifications or self-conceptions that are legitimate and are not legitimate? Uh, because I, I think if, because when you deal with just a particular issue and you're dealing with the emotional aspect of a particular individual crossing the table from you, Greg Johnson, who wants to identify certain ways, um, what for him, what would be self-conceptions that are sinful. So if someone wanted to identify as a, uh, he mentions uh, being addicted to pornography uh, in a cross-politic interview, um, does a pornographic Christian, is that self-conception wrong? Um, is the idea of maybe a pedophile Christian, is that wrong? So if you're a Catholic priest, you're like, oh yeah, we're just pedophile Catholic priests, uh, self-conception or Baptist youth minister, whatever it may be, um, I think Greg would want to push back at those points. So what we need from them, more so than debating straight up whether or not a gay self-conception is legitimate, what self-conceptions are legitimate and which ones are illegitimate. Because what they're trying to do, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who's somewhat sympathetic, it seems to be, to Greg and these men, and he wanted to put it in the context of they're trying to do ministry to these people that no one else is doing ministry to. And, you know, maybe I'm willing to grant that and agree with them, but I think the, the, there's a bigger issue involved here um, because it ties into a couple things. Last week I brushed on the idea that, uh, you know, for, for many people their existence precedes essence, and I was asked what that means, and it's basically this. If you created the car, um, what it is is a car. It has a purpose, a design, a goal, an end. What I'm driving here to Gainesville uh, was created with a purpose, and that's getting you from point A to point B, um, blah, blah, blah. And so it has a nature to it. Uh, for the existentialist, you and I as human beings, uh, there's not even really a thing called a human being, uh, because that would probably imply an essence or a nature. There is no essence. We just are. And then by an act of the will, we determine uh, what we are. So there's a that uh, existence, and then by an act, we determine what we are. And so there is no uh, straight, there is no gay, there is no nothing. There's just a thing that ends up determining its desire. So uh, looking back at the history of, uh, there's a, a article, uh, article, a manifesto that came out in the 1970s called the Gay Manifesto. And uh, the gentleman who wrote this says, uh, regarding in on orientation, one, what is homosexuality? It says this, what homosexuality is. Nature leaves undefined the object of sexual desire. The gender of that object is imposed socially. Humans originally made homosexuality taboo because they needed every bit of energy to produce and raise children. A survival of the species was a priority. With overpopulation and technological change, that taboo, um, that taboo continued only to exploit us and to enslave us. And so, you know, this was written 50 years ago. And the reality that he wants to say, no, nature itself does not tell you what your sexual desires ought to be. And so here, here's the rub with, I think, some of the revoice stuff, which, uh, and I want to do them justice. I don't think I can do them justice in uh, a 15-minute uh, podcast. Um, but the basic idea is this. I think what Revoice is attempting to do is ultimately going to be late to the game because the very nature of all these sociological understandings of self-identification is going to be radically different 15 years from now. So what they're seeking to do in one breath is to deconstruct the historical context or the culture of the Bible and just say these things are kind of uh, culturally embedded. And yet what they're ironically doing is somewhat absolutizing our current 
context and our current culture. So if you take you know, Foucault's understanding of homosexuality uh, that I brushed on uh, last podcast, and then where we are today and where we're going to be 50 years from now, all those understandings are going to be radically different. So this current approach of, uh, I would say, certain strands of the church and evangelicalism to try to communicate to uh, the homosexual community, which I think is a good thing and something we need to do and uh, a place where we need to be more loving, more gracious, and share the gospel more um, and the good news. Um, but I think the idea of calling somebody to repentance, uh, it, it includes things like this, that nature does tell you uh, what uh, it does not leave undefined. Nature does tell you because what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, uh, at least in part, includes the aspect of desiring somebody outside of you. Now, the reality of the fall and all the difficulties that come in with that uh, starts to become a different discussion. Uh, but Paul several times, like in Romans 1, talks about what nature is, uh, you know, going against nature and burning when their desires for one another. And so this, uh, the existential approach that is beginning to dominate certain strands of American Christianity and self-conceptions, I think might sound good immediately and contextually, uh, but 20 years from now, it's going to be very outdated. And that's where we have to be a little bit wiser in approaching those who disagree with us and understanding, like, no, here's long-term uh, here's what's going on. The, the, the current postmodernists can agree with us that there's, uh, the world is flux and change, and there is a certain level of self-identification you can obviously take on. People can say a lot of things about themselves. Um, but the question is, do you have a nature that we're calling people back to and what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a, a woman? And much of our call to repentance is back towards those things. And with the eradication of kind of a natural law and a natural understanding of who we are and the rise of existentialism, that there is no nature to man, but only an existence, and then we end up determining that nature, that wins and rules the day. And part of our evangelism is calling people to repentance back to what it means to be a man, back to what it means to be a woman. And through the death of our resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's restoring us back to that. And so you know, I feel like I can fully affirm what's going on in the Nashville Statement, uh, where they're trying to go. Uh, I also can agree with certain strands of what people are trying to do is put some layers on to communicate with people who don't understand what it is we believe. And that's one thing that's becoming more and more prominent to me when I'm on campus is I really am talking a foreign language to people. And so when I show up on campus and, you know, if I'm just giving them my, my Christianese and all my stuff, they really don't understand what I'm saying. It really is a foreign language. And so I think the, the idea of evangelism in our context more and more uh, is we're not dealing with Israelites and the prophets going to them. We're, we're genuinely going to Gentiles who know little or nothing about the gospel. Uh, but the way forward is not the revoice approach to evangelism uh, to the LGBT community, but uh, going to the LGBT community um, is... I think in part, calling them to repentance and faith has changed their minds about their own self-conception. Um, and obviously, we can all be sympathetic to somebody who's wrestling through Romans 7 and sinful desires and sinful ways. Um, we can all have some uh, empathy and sympathy for a person suffering through those things, as we all, in some regard, do suffer. And even Jesus is our high priest who's able to um, you know, minister to us as uh, who's tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And I don't want to distort that into Jesus had homosexual desires or anything like that. Um, but due to our doctrine of sin, we can step back and understand that men burn with one another um, 
and so we don't need to deny the existential aspect of what's going on internally with them, uh, but the question becomes, in calling them out of that and into faith in Jesus Christ, what does that practically look like? And I think the Revoice people are headed the wrong way, and the, the right way um, is, is laying out uh, you know, the creation, the fall, the redemption of what Jesus Christ has done, and that looks like a restoration of nature, um, not just, you know, uh, and it's not something that does not restore nature. It restores nature. Grace restores nature. I think I read a Herman Bovic once. And that's kind of wrong with me, and I think that's true, and that's something that we need to uh, recoup in our evangelism, that uh, you know, it, it restores you to being a man. It restores you to being a woman. It restores you sexual desires. It restores these things, and we don't believe ever perfectly in this age, um, but it sets them in the right course, and I think certain concepts of self-identification in our culture are going to lead us the wrong way. So that's this episode of the Campus Church Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me at Keith at CampusPreacher.com on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, or um, on Facebook, Keith Thurl. And if you're at uh, G3 this week, hopefully I'll see you. Reach out to me. Talk to me. Bye. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in.